just so many business podcasts out there. How can I possibly know where to begin? Here at Intrepid Business, we are about stripping away all of the usual boring fluff and instead focus on showcasing real people doing real business, achieving amazing things. The ones truly changing the world, the instigators making a dent, the people changing how we do sales and marketing, leading innovation, the people redefining leadership. But who are these people? Why do they do what they do? How do they do what they do? Find out on Intrepid Business. And now, here are your hosts. Good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Business. I am your host, Todd Schnick. I can't have enough conversation around the importance of focusing on the customer and the end user. It sounds so simple, but it continues to be a massive problem across all the business that I observe. And so today's guest is going to shed some additional light on this very, very important subject. So let's get to it. I'm joined this morning by Denise Drummond Dunn. She's the founder and president of C3 Centricity and the author of a new book called Winning Customer Centricity. Denise, welcome to the show. Good morning, Todd. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, the pleasure is mine. I appreciate you carving out some time to join me. I know you're a busy person, so I appreciate you making time. Denise, before we get into our conversation, we're going to center it around this great new book of yours. Take a few quick seconds, inform the audience a bit about you and your background. Okay. My background is primarily in consumer goods. I did work in a finance company when I first left university, but the last 30 years I've worked for primarily consumer goods companies such as Nestle for many years and before that Philip Morris International and before that Gillette, who's now a part of P&G. And the passion for the customer has always been there, which is why I left the finance industry, because I wanted to talk to real people about real products and not just about money. And that's, uh, as I said at the top of the show, that is still amazingly lacking in the business conversation. And we may get into exploring why that's still a problem. But all right, so let me lead off the conversation this way. I ask all of my guests some variation of this question, not to be snarky or frustrated, but I'm curious as to see the mindset uh, about a subject matter. Let's be honest, if we go to Amazon and search for books about focusing on the customer, there's probably thousands of titles from which we can choose. So why did you have to write this one? Why did you write Winning Customer Centricity? Well, I wrote it because there are no business books like this. It's planned to be the first in a series. In my corporate life, I used to have tens of books sitting on my shelf that I never had time to read. And now with the internet, it's even worse. We all have far too much to read. And therefore, even if I had time to just flick through it, I never actually actioned any of the good ideas. So when I started to write the series, I thought, what does the corporate businessman or businesswoman need? And it was something that was inviting, appealing to read, was a quick read, and above all, actionable. So Winning Customer Centricity is a new style of business book. If you look at the cover, it doesn't look anything like the normal boring business books. It's fun. It's got cartoons in it. It's got inspiring quotes. It has 50 chapters, but each chapter is only two pages. So it's uh, easily read in your coffee break, your lunch break. And it's designed to be fun to read and above all actionable because that's the objective of the day. There is then the actions to be taken. And then I give some examples and ideas from other companies that have 
done what I consider to be a good job. So in reading two pages, you immediately have actions. And with 50 chapters, you can read one a week or you can read one a day or you can read several a day. It's up to you. Yeah, well, and I love that kind of book. That's my kind of book. As you said, with all the noise generated by the internet, I worry that long form uh, reading is dying a slow death. And, and this kind of book is exactly the kind of style for the rapid, quick, crazy life that I lead. So I'm looking, when I, when I first saw there were 50 chapters, I panicked thinking, holy smokes. But I realized <laughs> that it was organized in a way. And that's the key. What you said is that this is actionable. How many books are out there that, as you say, sit on a shelf and collect dust and are more showpieces than they are? actionable inspiration. So I appreciate you doing that. So, all right, this idea of customer centricity, I've not heard of that phrasing before. So what do you mean by customer centricity? Okay, well, I'm surprised, Todd, that you haven't heard about it before, but uh, certainly in Europe, the, everybody's talking about it. But the problem is they're talking it, but not walking it. So what is customer centricity? It's all about putting the customer at the heart of your business. The customer now is standing up getting noticed, they have a voice, especially with social media today, and they're making that voice heard. So if you don't listen to the customer, they're going to make sure that everybody else listens to them when they're unhappy with your products or services. So you better start listening to them. And that's what I help to do and what winning customer centricity does. It brings the customer back to the business and makes you think customer first in everything you do. If I was to sit down with 10 business people, say owners of an organization, and I was to ask them, are you focused on your customer? I'm going to assume that nine out of 10 or maybe 10 out of 10 would say, well, of course we are. Absolutely. But you and I both know that's not accurate. What's missing? What's the disconnect there when someone thinks of themselves as being focused on their customer, being customer centric, but we know that they're really not? What's missing there? What's happening there? Why is that occurring? Because they're thinking about it, but they're not taking action. I mean, one thing I love to do when I go to a new client, because I know I'm going to have this conversation that, yes, they think customer first and uh, they're customer centric. But what I do is I look at their website. And one of the easiest places to see if they are customer centric is to look at their contact page. Now, how many companies have a contact page with a form that you fill in your name, your address, your email address? your phone number, and then you might even have a drop-down menu of a certain number of topics that you can contact them on. Now, that isn't customer-centric because I'm filling in a form. I don't know where it's going. I don't know if anybody receives it. I've been blocked by a menu of topics to choose from, and they know everything about me. I've just had to fill in this form. I know nothing about them other than I need to contact that company. Now, a truly customer-centric company will include on their contact page a name of somebody to contact. They'll certainly have their email address, several email addresses for different areas, phone numbers, and a postal address and their actual address. So if I want, as a customer, to call into their offices, or I want to phone them, or I want to email them, or I want to send them a letter, I have that choice. So the customer is in charge of deciding how they contact the company and not the other way around. So that is a very easy way to find out if the company is really customer-centric or not. And you'll be surprised how many internet websites today have this contact form and no other way of contacting the company. 
Oh, I'm thinking about my contact form, and I think I've done it the Denise way, so I've, I'm <laughs> breathing a sigh of relief. So, <laughs> so the contact form is one thing. Sure, I get that. What are some other examples of someone, of an organization that's not practicing customer centricity? I mean, you've indicated that in many cases, these organizations are tricking people. Now, I don't necessarily think they're going into it with this devilish look saying, all right, we're hoping to trick these people. But that's, in essence, what they're doing. And that's that's the impact that it's having on the customer because they do feel tricked. Walk us through that a bit. I think you're right that uh, a lot of the times the companies don't go out to trick the customer. However, their behavior does and the customer feels they're tricked. So whether the company decided or not, the customer has decided they've been tricked. Examples such as reducing pack content and keeping the same price. So effectively, they have increased the price of the product by the pound or whatever, but they haven't indicated that to customers. One thing that drives me crazy is opening a pack and finding it only half full. So they've kept the same pack size. And I think that they have their machine set up for that pack size. So it's not that they're trying to trick. However, the customer does feel tricked when they open the pack and see it's only half full. Another thing is putting these lovely pictures on the packs that when you open the product, they're always disappointing. Now, I know we want to show us, uh, show we all want to be as beautiful as possible. And when people sell products, they want them to look great. But if they're so far removed from the real product, again, the customer's going to be disappointed. And if a customer's disappointed, they'll buy once, but they won't buy twice. So yes, you've made that first sale, but they, you won't make a second sale. And then people today tell other people. In the past, they might have told 10 people if they were upset. Now they're telling 10 million over the internet. Mm-hmm. So it's just not worth the while to try and trick consumers or try to make your products appear better than they are. Absolutely. All right. Denise Drummond Dunn will return after this short break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the new international best-selling book, Leadership Rigor. This groundbreaking book will turn everything you think you know about leadership upside down. Leadership Rigor explores how to achieve breakthrough performance and productivity through leading yourself, leading teams, and leading at the organizational level. Author Erica Piedler outlines for her readers how to become change-ready leaders. Change-ready leaders are capable of embracing challenges with agility and optimism because they have the tools, models, and language to assess structure and facilitate solutions leadership is a skill that can be learned and practiced take the rigor challenge and ask yourself do you want to lead mindfully and skillfully or do you want to subject your teams and organizations to your unstructured thoughts and approaches the choice is yours will you rigor it you can purchase leadership rigor on amazon or by visiting ericpeedler.com all right I am back with Denise Drummond Dunn, the founder and president of C3 Centricity and the author of a brand new book, Winning Customer Centricity. All right. So we talked to the right before the break about organizations and I'm hand, air quoting here, tricking customers. I think it's important to talk about how to get out of that rut. I think most organizations would say, well, that's smart marketing or smart packaging or smart thinking on our part to do that. And they, but they don't realize that they are tricking customers, thus losing customers. But how do you, what strikes me is, it's one thing to write a memo and put it on everyone's desk and say, stop doing that. It's another thing to change the organizational mindset, to get everyone involved in the organization thinking a different way about how to be customer-centric. How do you begin to make that shift? It's easier said than done. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's vital that every employee 
becomes customer-centric. You can't leave it to the marketing department or customer care or the call centers to look after the customer. Everybody in the company has a role to play. Therefore, it needs to be a top-down decision. It needs to be a company culture change. And the change is easy to make because it just is think customer first. If you take a decision, think what would our customers say if they heard we'd made this decision? If you have a meeting at the end of the meeting, what would our customers say about what we've just decided, the plan or the process that we've decided to make? One of the most customer-centric companies that I know is Zappos, and they actually have all their new employees from executives downwards actually work in their call centers for the first month. So they come into contact with customers. And I think it doesn't have to be the call center, but I think it should be on everybody's objective to meet regularly with the customer. Now, when I say meet, it could be physically go out to the stores, talk to them, participate in a market research project. Or if you have a call center, answer a few calls. Or if you have a retail outlet, go and work behind the counters and talk to the customer. Talking to the customer has to become, if not a daily, a weekly or monthly objective for everybody in the organization. And so few people do. They leave it to the, as I say, to the customer service people or marketing or sales people. And it's such a pity because the customers, as you mentioned earlier, love to talk about what they want, what they dream of having or what they're frustrated about. And there's so much valuable information they could give us. You don't need to go through some complex process to do market analysis and market research. As you said, just talk to the darn customer. I mean, and you mentioned Zappos. That's a common example when you talk about building a culture that fosters customer centricity, I I suspect. To me, the simple thing that Zappos does is, is, is empower its people to deal with customers any way necessary to keep that customer happy. I mean, it's that simple, I think, but yet, Why do so many organizations still struggle with empowering their people to do that? It's a great point, Todd. They empower people. And as I said, everybody in the organization works under that culture that you do what's necessary to please the customer. I think that in a lot of organizations, they don't trust their employees. So they will have scripts that they have to use when connecting with customers. They can't take decisions. They have to see their manager or the director before giving, I don't know, a reimbursement of a product that's faulty. I think if companies make the employee responsible and make it a culture that within certain limits, everybody in the organization has the right to please the customer and the customer comes first, there would not be a problem. Amazon have done it, Zappos, as we talked about. There are so many companies now starting to do this. And I just don't understand. Why do you employ somebody and then not trust them? You're paying them, so you should be trusting them. It doesn't make any sense to me. It boggles my mind why that happens. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. So hopefully, little by little, we'll bring change. And my book, Winning Customer Centricity, people will enjoy reading and they will gradually start to take some of the actions I mentioned in the book. Even if they only take a couple, there's 50 actions there. So there's lots of examples. They should be able to make a difference that they will see in the organization and more importantly, their customers will see. Well, I think the key point is you can't deploy all 50 steps at one time. You probably need to roll this out slowly and carefully, methodically and think it through and see what happens and make course corrections as you go. A lot of the context of our conversation so far, Denise, has been more around 
building a culture that fosters customer centricity, obviously, and that's critically important. Uh, what I want to talk or I want to ask you about is, all right, so let's say you've, you've had a negative interaction with a customer and they're displeased for whatever reason. I still think there's too many organizations that botch that opportunity to address that problem and fix it and still don't do it well. Am I correct? Is that a common problem still? And then how do you deal with customers who are unhappy? Absolutely. There's a lot of customers and, and who are left unhappy. And what is important to keep in mind is the people that contact you are on average, certainly in consumer goods, only about one out of 20 people that had the same problem. Therefore, you should be thankful that they contacted you because those other 20, the majority of them will just go off and change brands or change product and you've lost them forever. So when somebody contacts you to complain, that's a wonderful opportunity, not only to put it right, but you actually get a boost to your image and some positive publicity because by correcting the issue and not just satisfying, but delighting the customers. So going beyond what they would expect, not just reimbursing the product that was faulty, but maybe giving them an upgrade for free. Amazon, for instance, regularly give upgrades of premium service or premium uh, postal services for free and customers are delighted. And what do customers that are delighted do? They talk about it. They talk to their friends. They talk to the family. They'll tweet about it online. And people think that's a good company. So out of a negative experience, you've actually got a positive boost to your image. And as I said, the fact that 19 out of 20 people don't complain and just go off to buy another brand, you've got to treat every complaint as a gift because that's what it is. We've been talking about that concept, Denise, for years now, and yet people <laughs> still don't seem to get their head wrapped around the opportunity that that is. I mean, you've touched several times on the impact that social media has in terms of now when you're frustrated as a customer, you talk, you would used to talk to your neighbors and reach a few of them, but now you can reach 10 million, as you said. I don't know why organizations don't embrace the opportunity there. I mean, it feeds on what we just talked about and that when you, when someone voices unhappiness, you have that opportunity to have those 10 million people see you take drastic action to solve that problem. I just, I don't get why organizations still don't embrace and are still largely frightened of what social media can do. It's correct. I think that there are two areas where there needs to be improvement. First of all, that there needs to be more training in how to correspond mm -hmm. with customers mm -hmm. because there is training on the telephone, but there's no record other than the company registering the, the call, recording the call. But when it's on social media, everybody can read it. And there have been so many disasters in the past where a company has been arrogant in its response to customers that everybody can see it. So instead of just sorting out one customer's problem, what they've done is actually tell all the other customers that this company doesn't respect its customers. And I think that is one problem. The other problem is that I believe a lot of companies feel that if they are seen to be generous, then all their customers will start complaining. Now, that is crazy. People don't. But most of the time, even if the conversation starts on social media, a company will quickly take it offline so that everybody else doesn't see what they're doing and how they're being generous. And again, people are going to talk anyway. So why not have control over that image building action that you're taking by being generous? There will always be a few people that cheat, but the majority of people are honest and they will not go after just because they've seen somebody else get a new product for free. 
that they'll all suddenly say, my product also is faulty. People don't have time for that these days. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Denise, we are almost out of time. One last quick question. If you could give one piece of advice to an organization listening to this conversation to be in order to become more customer-centric, what is that? Can I have two, Todd? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> Thank you. Well, the first one is obviously buy the book. Yeah. And the second one is go and talk to your customer every chance you get. Can't say that enough. Denise, I hate to say it, we are out of time. Before I let you go, how can people contact you should they have questions? Where can they learn more about C3 Centricity? And most importantly, where can they get their hands on a copy of this book? Okay. The website for C3 Centricity is c3centricity.com. The book Winning Customer Centricity also has its own website, winningcustomercentricity.com, all in one very long word. And you can contact me directly through either. I have all my Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook handles on there, even Skype and telephone and postal address as it should be. So they're all available. And of course, if it's too quick, you can always contact you and uh, you'll pass on the message. But as far as buying the book is concerned, it's out now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It's in all good bookstores. It's available in hardback, paperback, and iBook. And as of next month, there will also be an audiobook version. Oh, well, good. All right. I think it's fair to say that Denise does not have a generic contact form on her website. So I think we can rest assured about that. Denise, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for inviting me, Todd. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I have as well. All right. Well, that was Denise Drummond Dunn, founder and president of C3 Centricity and the author of a new book, Winning Customer Centricity. That's the end of this conversation. We'll be back soon. On behalf of my guest, Denise Drummond Dunn, I'm Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on Intrepid Business.